Let us turn to Psalm 80 for our scripture reading and uh, tarry there as we would think about God's revelation to us this morning. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come and save us. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and fill the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech thee, beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, and visit this vine, and the vineyard which you, your right hand has planted, and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the many, the man of your right hand, upon the son of man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. May God bless this reading to our good understanding. At Presbytery just passed, <clears throat> uh, the moderator always, after he's elected and serves for one year, then he is... Uh, privilege with preaching a sermon, his moderatorial sermon as he leaves. And so Mr. Nathan Eshelman preached to us, and uh, Nate is a pastor from Los Angeles. He had a congregation out there until a year ago or so. And so he's a recent addition to our presbytery. Uh, he was a kind of uh, leader out there. He has some natural leadership gifts, and uh, they're still missing him sorely in the Pacific Coast Presbytery, and they're praying for themselves and some of the problems that they're having out there, uh, and partly because uh, Mr. Eshelman is not with them anymore. He is with us. And I would argue that um, God has used uh, Nathan here in this presbytery because he's come in as a new face, and he's come to a presbytery where there were some lines drawn, of disagreement, and he's come in as a fresh face, and he's able to speak to uh, both sides of the disagreement with some objectivity and, I think, uh, some hearing that, that people that uh, hear him um, judge or are persuaded of his uh, good heart, his uh, love of the church and love of Christ, and, <clears throat> and so they're maybe more apt to listen to him as this new voice than they are to uh, each other, the past voices that have been there in the presbytery. So anyway, he comes and he, 
he, he comes to give this moderatorial sermon, and he, this was the text that he used um, uh, from Psalm 80, and he, um, uh, he more or less pointed out that he felt like our presbytery had been judged. And um, I really rejoiced at that sermon. So oftentimes we will hear sermons at times like this, and they're just general sermons on love. That is, that the, the God, the, the exhortation is that we have to love each other more. Well, that's, that's a good thing that's obvious, but it's also helpful to hear some more personal things, um, some more applicable things. And especially when you've been having troubles to hear sermons about that that don't need to take one side or the other unless it's very obvious but Nathan didn't really do that but he did bring the he bring it to into focus that that uh, these kinds of things don't happen unless God's hand is in it and, and what has happened well we've had we've had three of the most prominent men of presbytery now, I don't know what organizations you've been a part of in the past but you know how there are people that seem to be anointed with gifts that rise up within the general population of those societies and become take more and more take over more and more responsibility. And so it was three of these kinds of people that were were leading our presbytery, people to whom our presbytery, many of the men in the presbytery deferred kind of instinctively or automatically. It was three of these kinds of people that the Lord has taken from us in, in a rather unsettling ways. The first one was taken because he, he published some material where he questioned the historicity and the, the federal headship based upon that question of historicity. I mean, if Adam is not, if Adam is not literal, then uh, what about his, the, head, the, the federal headship that Romans 5, I think it's 5, ascribes to him? And if, if his headship is not real, then what about the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because Paul speaks of the first Adam and the second Adam. And these were the points at which were disputed in publication. And I remember when one of the other presbyteries wrote us a letter and said, Have you seen these writings? Would they trouble us? We think you they ought to come, they ought to be a part of your attention. And so we went and we began to study, and uh, a year later or so. Uh, that led to uh, 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 charges being brought, drawn up against this man. But, be, but instead of facing the charges, he uh, flew the church, as it were. Um, he, uh, he, he was a runner, in, in a sense. And, uh, and uh, what bothered me at the time was that many of the men didn't want to, didn't want to um, criticize him overly. They, they, uh, they even at the end, after he had left, they even had a motion that, that he might be uh, glorified in some way or, or celebrated in some way for all of his accomplishments with us. And I remember my comment at the time was that, uh, I, I think it was just insightful, I don't think it was overly harsh, but I said, would, uh, would uh, the early Christians, would, would they have celebrated Judas Iscariot for all of his, now he's an extreme case. But would they have celebrated Judas for his uh, his labor uh, for the, the twelve disciples, even though he denied, even though he 
betrayed our Lord in the end. And um, sometimes the betrayal, it, it colors the whole rest of his life and it makes the rest of his life, um, uh, it's impossible to look on him as one of the quote, good disciples. And so uh, that was my, my sense of the thing. That was the first one. Then the second one was this, this is a case of the child molestation that we had in our presbytery. And um, the, the first offense of that was that the, the session, when they became aware of it, uh, and the whole session didn't become aware of it immediately, but when they did become aware of it, they did not raise the hue and the cry in our presbytery. It was fully a year later until we, we heard about these things and then could begin to address them. So right from the start, we were suspicious of why they did not call upon the whole church. The, even the scriptures say, for these big problems, take it to the church, that, uh, the, that the church might hear about it. And uh, in the end, um, there was very little, uh, there was very little patience from the church there uh, to hear or to, to consider, to let the Presbytery consider. And since we were told this is, this is so awful that we've got to get over it, and there was this, this rush to forgive and to get beyond it uh, while we were still learning about the details of it. And I, I don't think that served us well at all. And eventually that church, and that was a, it was a young, uh, growing church, it was fairly strong in terms of its numbers in, uh, in Indiana, uh, it ended up uh, leaving our denomination. Along well, well, the pastor left. Again, he was, uh, uh, before he faced his charges, he took a run or two. And, uh, and uh, they're still out there. We, we still pray for them. We're, we, we miss them. But they're just things that were left, on, uh, left undone. And ultimately that case went to our whole synod because they... They appealed the work of the presbytery. They did not like the treatment that they were getting from the presbytery, so they appealed to the synod. The synod felt the same way that the presbytery did, and uh, so their judgment came forth to for the men to resign, for the men on the session. And remember, they, they this church had two rule, uh, two teaching elders, which is uh, rare. We we have that too in this in our situation, but it's rare to have two teaching elders on site. And, uh, and both of them basically took the position that was cited uh, or was criticized by the Synod first, then by the Presbyter. Now, so those are the first two. And um, these men were both very, very, very bright people, very significant leaders of the Presbytery. And then this last summer <clears throat> or last fall, I guess, we had another man that had been associated with uh, one of our bigger churches, the Presbytery, and he uh, withdrew. He did not like the direction that he saw the Presbytery going in, in terms of those that were wanting to deal with these issues realistically. He didn't, uh, well, I, I, I have not talked with him. I, I, I would, uh, would like to, but uh, it has not availed itself. And so uh, he, this past year, we just, or this past fall, or this past late late fall I think it was he repudiated the jurisdiction of the church that's what it's called and he he asked us that we would transfer his credentials that is his official status as an ordained man he asked us that we would transfer that to uh, an, an independent church there in Indiana not even a denomination but an independent church and this 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 came up at this past presbytery meeting and um, 
many of us felt like that, that's just it's uh, it's wrong. It's against our book of church order. We can we can transfer men to other reformed denominations. They they, they differentiate between the denominations and the the churches uh, or a church uh, in terms of what we can do because the the denomination is aware. The RPCNA is aware of the different distinctions between ecclesiastical bodies, and so we. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure what we did yet. I have to hear the report that was done. Uh, there was a vote to uh, release uh, his uh, letter of standing that he had been a member uh, in good standing with us before all of these things uh, arose. But it remains to be seen what the what the presbytery um, ruled on that. But we've had these these three very significant things having to do with the leaders of our church, and so. Um, uh, it goes through my mind. Um, these these three men were applauded and celebrated for by a, a, a majority of the presbytery. They were they were liked and appreciated by all of us, I think. Uh, but uh, it just runs to the root of the thing. If uh, if these things can happen in a, a spate of uh, two years or so, uh, what were we really doing? What were we, what were we, what were we really teaching? all this time. How did this happen? What were the antecedent causes for these actions or, or, or effects that were negative? And there's been very little interest in looking at those kinds of questions and analyzing the situation. It would be kind of like if, uh, if you had a, a Chevy dealership and you had some salesmen there and you had a prize salesman and he was always uh, uh, Celebrating <coughs> the wonder, the wonder of the Chevy car, and uh, uh, again and again, he would take leadership in your dealership and exhort the other men on the virtues of the Chevy, and how much he loved this car, and how much it uh, it impressed itself upon him, and how he then encouraged them to sell these cars and to um, promote them. And then one day you walked in and he was not there, and you said, "Well." Where's Bill? And so oh, he uh, he started working for Ford <laughs> uh, Friday night. And you say, what 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 happened? He was he was the one that was the most in favor of Chevy. How can he switch overnight? Well, that's kind of what our presbytery faced. And so um, Nathan Eshelman, without emphasizing the fact that these three men had been leaders in our presbytery, which I might have done because I had more experience with it and. I'm more. Uh, it's more my existential sense of things. Uh, he just he focused on the idea that the presbytery had really been disturbed, and he, having been here for a year uh, or year and a half, he was uh, aware, well aware of the tension and the strife that is going on in our presbytery, and so he was exhorting our presbytery to take these things seriously and to seek the Lord's face. And he did it through the psalm. Now, what we see in the psalm is that God, um, he evidently loves Israel very, very much. We, that's brought out in the first few verses. <clears throat> um, uh, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, who you who led Joseph like a flock. Now, a shepherd loves his flock. His uh, shepherd is devoted to his flock. We think of Psalm 23 and the, the affection that is communicated there between 
the, the good the shepherd, the good shepherd there of that flock and the, the lambs, especially lambs seem so defenseless and weak and, and uh, vulnerable. And so the shepherd uh, puts himself into it and gives his all that the sheep might be protected. That's the image. That's the metaphor that this starts with. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. It sees Israel not as some distant God, not some abstract God like we might see in Islam, but we see uh, this God as one who is intimately uh, affected and interested in his people. And uh, then it, it, it focuses on the, the, um, uh, the greatness of God, the transcendence of God. You who dwell between the cherubim shine forth. Well, this reminds us of the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the two cherubim that, that Moses was commanded to, to make, to stand over the seat of the covenant. And uh, these angelic uh, uh, statues that were created uh, were, were remind us of how God is above all the creation, even the angelic creation, but he visits the creation uh, with these angelic creatures. And so then uh, verse 2, it says, Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, and we've been in this series that we've been doing on Genesis, we've been studying many of these men, the, the patriarchs first, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Joseph and his family and his brothers and his children, and of course Manasseh and Ephraim were children of, uh, of Joseph. And they received a double inheritance. God gave Joseph, a double inheritance above what his brothers, his 11 brothers had received, a double inheritance that then were, were, were uh, applied to his two children, his two sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. So God trades upon that knowledge and he says, before Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your strength, come and save us. And then we see the theme of it right away in verse 3, restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we shall be saved. So we see here that God loves Israel, that she was his chosen instrument. And uh, he even uses in verses, <clears throat> verse 8 and following, he even talks, he talks uh, like a, uh, a, a vine dresser who has created a vineyard. And if, if a shepherd has a great affection for his sheep, then so does the, 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 the vine dresser the man who creates a vineyard for himself. He goes and laboriously prepares the ground and then takes these, these root vines that are rooted or have roots found them and he pla places them carefully in the soil as deeply as he can. He, he uh, prepares the soil like he knows they must be prepared. He waters them in a very special way because it's a semi-arid climate, but grapes are, grapes and olives, one is a tree and one is a vine, are very apt to grow in these dry areas if they're taken care of. And so in verse 8, we see it says, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. It's like you've, you've ripped out the, oh, the weeds and you've prepared a land and, uh, for uh, a vineyard and you've planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. Um, the, the hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her bows to the sea. So we see the evident love, first of all, portrayed in Psalm 80. God loves the church. God loves the elect. God loves his visible, both his invisible and his visible church in different ways, certainly in, in different, different two degrees of efficacy. 
but he loves his people and he calls them to follow him and he preaches unto them and he ministers with them. He spends his time with them. He cultivates them like the vine, like a tree that's planted that then grows up and sends its boughs into the sky. And so first of all, we see the evident love for Israel. And and, uh, uh, Mr. Eshelman brought out by degree the love that God has for our presbytery. And our presbytery is one of the two most significant presbyteries in the RPC. Our presbytery and then the presbytery of the Alleghenies. POA, they call it, initials. Uh, POA, Presbytery of Alleghenies. Uh, That is where the Vince clan comes from. And uh, so we're on either side here of the continental divide of the two polar strengths of the RPC and A. And so Nathan understood that and he he referred to the the love of God for our our presbytery just as God loved Israel. And God, God has a love for his church. He has a love for his people. He has a love for all of those who believe in him. He has a love for you. If your heart is cast upon Christ, then uh, the, the, the love of the living God is yours uh, by deed and trust. And it's a wonderful thing. But now we see the, the theme of the psalm comes through because Israel time and again erred and sinned against this God who was the love of their lives. And, and they were the love, of, more importantly, they were the love of his life, of his Existence. He does not have a life in our sense or in our dependent sense, but he has. He lives. He exists in independently of all the creation. He exists in and of himself powerfully. He is not dependent upon any other being, any other creature, any other strength other than his own strength. And so, uh, this is the God who becomes offended with Israel. This reminds us that we we can never coast or just coast in our lives. We don't get up to a point where we become members of of, uh, Southwest Ohio RP Church. And then once we're members and we come, we come and we we sit on a seat and we take that seat and we feel like we've been delivered and we've we've arrived. Well, if if you receive some grace, then you may feel that. But God wants us, he wants you to do more than that. God doesn't want us to just exist in our Christian lives. God wants us to strive in our Christian lives. He exhorts us in in Philippians 2 about that. Work out your own salvation, he says, in fear and trembling. God wants us, God invites us to keep growing in our lives. And uh, it's not enough to take off with Christ. We must continue to fly with Christ. We must seek out new destinations. We must land and take off again and again and aspire unto greater things. Now, uh, when God finds us then with either disobedience or, or apathy, and the one is almost as bad as the other, they're both signs of uh, unbelief in our hearts. How, how can it not be unbelief? If, 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 if our hearts are enamored with the living God, if we have any sense of who he is, then he pulls us further and further along the way. We can never be exhausted by the glory of his name, by interest in who he is and what he teaches us. And so by the evident nature of his divine being, 
there's always this pull upon us. And if anywhere along the way, <clears throat> like with Lot's wife, like with Lot, where they were bewitched by the culture in which they lived and gave up a, a warm-hearted sensitivity to God and his demands upon them, uh, Lot's wife, even to the point where, where she, well, while she was being delivered by the Lord himself, by the angels, while she was being delivered, she looked back longingly to Sodom. And that was it with God. God brought his wrath down upon her and turned her into a pillar of salt. How could she be so ungracious, so unthankful, so undriven to find new life with the Lord? And so whenever this has happened in Israel's history, whenever this has happened, uh, God has, he's often let Israel slide for a while, but then he has come back and he has called her to account and he's done that with tribulation and with trial. And uh, so that's what we see here because in verse, um, <clears throat> verse 4, the psalmist says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry? against the prayer of your people. I've had people, I remember I was I was caught up with this verse in the very first couple years of my very first church. And I preached about it. And I, I said, many of you think that any prayer that you offer to God is tantamount to holy and that and that uh, um, the church and the church church people and even God himself is blessed to hear your prayer. But I said this this verse is evidently against that because God in this case it says that God uh, <clears throat> that God um, was angry with the prayer of his people prayers in and of themselves are nothing they are the words of our mouth but to what are those words pointed what are the sentiments of the prayer are the sentiments based are they in any way holy and agreeable to God's word are, are the prayers based upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his work? Do we pray in our own humanistic strength, O oh God? You are, you are great and lovely, but you have given me the strength to pray to you and to approach you according to the dictates of my own heart and the sentiments of my own experience. Well, you see, right away, uh, that is a way too presumptuous of our own hearts and our own experience. We ought to be more humble. We ought to realize that any prayer that we utter comes from a sinful heart. It comes with mis mental misgivings, shortcomings, misunderstandings. We ought to realize that any prayer that we pray to the Lord needs to be sanctified. It's a putrid thing. It's a polluted thing. It's a corrupt thing in and of itself. But our Lord Jesus Christ said, I am your high priest in John 17, and I will take your prayers. I will, I will uh, add the incense of Christ to your prayers as was prefigured in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. The incense of Christ adorns our prayers. And if that's the case, then God loves to hear our prayers. But if we've grown cold and we move away from God, if we're pretty happy with ourselves, if we are unable by the Spirit of God to be cautioned, to be led to repentance, to really take these things seriously, to move off of our high horse onto the ground 
and uh, even to beat our breasts like the publican of the temple to which Jesus brought attention himself with his disciples. He said, look at this man. They were more self-satisfied. But there was one man in the temple that day that was beating his breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He, he, his sin was so large before his eyes that he could not see how God could pass him by and could forgive him. Of course, then, when we beat our breasts like that and when we cry out to God like that, that's the very time at which he meets us. We can bring tribulation upon ourselves by our importuning before God and his spirit, or God will bring it upon us if we don't do it ourselves, if we don't have the insight to do it ourselves. And so in this case, God tells Israel in verse 4, or through this psalm, and I, I, I need to say too that because of this phenomenon, because God, because men do tend to grow uh, calloused against the Lord, and they do tend to grow cold. Uh, that's the reason God gave us this song, or I could say this psalm. They both mean the same thing. He gives us the song for this very phenomenon. He gives us the psalm to teach us. This is your danger, O Israel. This is your danger, O believer. Have you believed in Christ? This is your danger. And so I give you a whole song about this and you can sing it and you can awaken in your own hearts the fact that I love you, I love Israel, I love the believer, but you must continue the walk. You cannot coast along on the laurels of past faith and past fellowships in the church of Christ. And so that's what he does. Uh, o Lord of hosts, some said, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of your tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. You see, the insight of the psalmist, he realizes that this is not just an, uh, an act of sort of uh, uh, Im, uh, impersonal providence some impersonal force, this has come from God himself. It, it's deserving of personal pronouns. You, O Lord of hosts, the name of the Lord, O Jehovah, God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Well, Mr. Eshelman was saying, is this not the case with this presbytery? My presbytery. He's a, he's, he, he's a member of it, so am I. Uh, so are uh, you, incidentally, through your elders and teachers. And so <clears throat> um, uh, we see that God is personally angry at us, or he does get personally angry at us whenever we tarry and wander from him. And, uh, and so... This is a major emphasis of this song. Again, the song is given to us for this kind of problem, for this kind of occasion. And then the third thing we see here is that uh, uh, God may use this judgment to revive us. And that comes forth early on and then is repeated. Verse 3 he prays, well, verse 1, give ear, O shepherds. So that's a, a, an urging of the Lord to hear. This prayer, verse 3, restore us, O God, uh, restore us. It's repeated in verse 7, restore us, O God of 
host, cause your face to shine upon us and we shall be saved. See, this idea that if God is the one that is the causative agent for this repentance, that then we shall repent. And so the prayer is, oh God, bring us your successful and your energetic power that will be efficacious upon us, that will work. Not, not our feeble efforts that sometimes uh, do work or don't work. I printed out 22 bulletins uh, Saturday to bring to church this morning, but they never made it here because of my wee poor brain. I left them in on the tray of the printer, and I didn't even think about it until one of the men asked me here, uh, are there bulletins this morning? But you see, God is not like this. God is efficacious. There is no failure in the living God or any of his ministrations. And so he uses these, these trials. God took Israel off of its property, took them to Babylon. God did not give them the property. He brought them in. They brought Abraham in and planted him like a vine in this area. But then he brought a great famine that we've been studying with the, uh, with the, through the life of Joseph, brought a great famine and forced him off the land for a season and down into Egypt. Uh, Joseph, Jacob, his dad, Abraham and Isaac before them, they all wondered, how is God going to work this out? He pointed to this land and said, he's going to give this land to us as a land of milk and honey. He's going to make it fertile. In the sense of Psalm 67, if we are obedient unto him, he will make even our corn to grow better than the, the corn of the countries around us, uh, of the other crops, because he is powerful and he is able to do that sort of thing. And so um, uh, God is able to do this sort of thing, and he often uses this judgment to, to revive his nation. The worst judgment was the, the, the uprooting of the people to take them captive to Babylon. That was the worst of all of them. That was the worse than the Assyrian invasion before them. It was worse than the time of the judges when the neighbors, the pagan neighbors, pressed upon them daily and weekly, yearly, hardly letting them carve out their new homes there in the land of Israel. But after this last one with Babylon, what did God bring forth? He brought forth his only begotten son, didn't he? And this is spoken of here in verse 17, where the psalmist says, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Who does this remind us of? Even the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so after Babylon, the people cried out and God returned them through Ezra and Nehemiah. He returned them to the land. And then he established them once again. They built up the, the walls again, uh, rebuilt places to worship. And uh, and uh, and then, in the midst of another time of callousness and uh, and uh, sleepiness, he he brought forth out of just some humble people a man, uh, Joseph, and his wife Mary. Just humble people. They were not priests. They were not part of the religious establishment. But their hearts were fleshly. Their hearts were sensitive to the Lord. And so it was out of this couple that God uh, overshone Mary uh, and uh, inseminated her with his spirit. And there was born to her a son uh, whose, of whose kingdom would, there would never be an end. Out of that suffering, out of that trial, out of the Roman dom domination, 
out of the trials of those days. And so this psalm reminds us of this. And if we, if in verse 18, it says, revive us, that is the Lord, revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine upon us and we shall be saved. That's what we call on the five points of Calvinism, irresistible grace. When God works upon us, his grace will not fail. It will bring us into the fruition that he looks for. And so um, <clears throat> this is the promise. This is the reality. And um, I, I, I have been persuaded again and again that our presbytery has not come to grips with what has been happening in its midst. And so this judgment that has come upon us has not come from us. I wish that I wish that one of us, like myself, had been given the ability to to stop the Presbyterian its tracks and to give an exhortation that would have been heard. But uh, every exhortation that I've given, and I've heard some others give them, John Ketty or Gordon Ketty, before he grew too old and had to retire, he was a pastor in Indianapolis. And uh, I heard many of the warnings that he gave to his brothers. These pleas to consider what's going on here, to, to, to awaken. But he, his pleas went unheeded. Uh, others too, uh, certainly mine, and uh, that I'm aware of. And, uh, and so I wish that maybe these things had been heard, but I don't think that they have. But now God, all by himself, without any of our help, he brought these things upon us, I believe. We can debate that. Uh, maybe some of the men in Presbyterian would like to debate that with me. I think that that's the, that's the problem right now. Many of them think that what has happened in these three cases have been brought about by uh, others that were too uh, scrupulous or scrupulous in the false sense or too uh, pharisaical maybe. You know, that, that, that it's because of us and our offense that we forced these three men out of the Presbyterian. And so there are probably some, I wouldn't doubt it, there are probably some who are angry at us for this. And so that's behind some of the things that have taken place. But the, the bottom line is certainly they are not persuaded that these events have taken place because of sin within the camp. I think all three of these cases are so grievous that it's almost impossible not to see them as a judgment of God upon us. I was so thankful for, to Mr. Eshelman that he broached the subject. <clears throat> um, I told him afterwards, I thanked him profusely. I said, I would have even done it more strongly, <laughs> but I'm thankful for pointing this, pointing this out and using the scripture text and helping us to understand it. But we, real, we realize here this morning at the end of this service that this is not just an abstract thing. It's not just for our presbytery. It's not just for our denomination. It's not just for Christians out there, but it's also for us. If we remember, if we consider this, it was exactly the kind of, of disinterest or lack of vitality. It's exactly that kind of sense of things that led old Israel to miss the coming of Christ. They had an ardent bureaucracy at that time. They had priests that were energetic. But they, they were not 
sensitive to the truth of the Bible, the sense of the sense of the living God. They didn't. They had forgotten. They'd come to the place where they'd even forgotten what the what the uh, sacrifice, the daily sacrifices, meant in terms of the the uh, awful toxicity of their own sin. So that they did not see the necessity for Christ, if we can imagine that. And sometimes we've talked about that. And we've all we've all labored at that and, and the thought, how, how could this be that these men who are the leaders of Israel, Nicodemus comes to, to Jesus and says, what does it mean to be born again? That he did not understand that all people must be changed by the Spirit of God. Now the Spirit brought him here in to hear that and we believe that Nicodemus was reborn then after his holy nocturnal interview with the Lord Jesus Christ. But how could he have been in that place to begin with? How could his father not have told him? How could the people not have exhorted them? How could they have not called out the, the priests for past sins like that of, Sam, of, uh, of uh, uh, the days of Samuel, and the priesthood and that sort of thing? And so uh, this is not just for the presbytery. It's not just for other people out there, but it's for us. So we can, we can ask ourselves, you know, why has God not blessed us more here? in this church. I, I fear that it's because we have not been more energetic ourselves. It's true that many of us are shy people. And uh, it's true that it's, it's, a, it's a great thing that we've survived as much as we have and that we have uh, succeeded as much as we have. That's a great thing. I thank the Lord uh, weekly and daily for the success of each of your lives and each of your families. But I'm also aware that there's more to give. And uh, I, 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 I see that in myself. I want to do more myself. So let us take this exhortation from Psalm 80 to heart and let us take it to prayer in our homes and let us honestly ask God, what more can we do? And we can certainly pray more energetically about these things in our own lives, in our own church. And then we can, uh, we can look for God's blessings. Surely, if God turns us aback, as this psalm says, surely, certainly if he revives us, then we shall be able to call upon his name in a more energetic way. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray, help our faith to not be something that is, sits on the shelf, something of memory, something that once happened, but help our faith to be lively and daily, an experiment of our holy faith in thee. Revive us again, O Lord, and we shall be revived. Help us to have that confidence in thee, O Lord, and help us to call upon thy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.